Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. If this is going to go on for a year, two years, three years, we can't continue to do knee-jerk reactions. And We're seeing more and more patients coming in seeking care around mental health. When does the cure become worse than the disease? Today was a day to open up about the local toll of the COVID-19 pandemic and to level with state lawmakers about what's at stake with a prolonged shutdown moving into the fall. I'm Marion Callahan. I've been writing about the health and economic impact of COVID-19 for USA Today Network's Pennsylvania news sites. Today, I'm reporting from Ben Salem's historic Penrhyn Estate, where the Pennsylvania House Majority Policy Committee is hearing from leaders from the region's medical and business communities. Businesses right now are still trying to figure out if they're gonna keep their doors open. Uh, so the last thing uh, that you need is to nickel and dime them to death, fees and surcharges and things like that. Um, that's the last thing, uh, the last burden that should be placed on any business right now. That's John Holub, Executive Director of Pennsylvania Retailers Association, responding to talk of possible surcharge increases. Pre-pandemic, uh, there was over 150,000 retail establishments in the state, and I'm still not sure how many are going to be in the next you know, six months. Bob McGowan, Chief Operating Officer of Peddler's Village, said small businesses are hanging on by a thread. The village of stores, restaurants, and hotels has spent thousands on safety measures, and that is on top of financial losses, along with the cancellation of festivals in 2020. We've had huge financial losses um, overall. I mean, we, we've basically made no money April, uh, second half of March, all of April, all of May, most of June. Uh, and now at 25% capacity indoor, uh, it's just impossible. 50%, like I said before, it's impossible. Uh, we, we really need the governor to open it up and look at our businesses, you know, more than just a one size fits all. Bucks County Health Department Director David Damsker said the time has come to allow businesses to open as long as they can do so safely with social distancing guidelines in place. We have to learn to live with this on a, on a, on a long-term basis. And I believe that the way we do that is to open things up, but do it safely, right? Every, we're talking about schools. You know, we, we've said here in Bucks County, we believe that every school can open safely in person, uh, following the school guidance that's put out there um, with full masking, everything else. Uh, we believe that um, you know, everything can be open to a degree. Look, there, there's, there's got to be some, some mitigation done in some of the businesses that are at a higher risk, and we, and we agree with that. But if this is going to go on for a year, two years, three years, we can't continue to do knee-jerk reactions and say, if there's a case in a school, we're going to shut it down. If there's a case at a, you know, whatever, we're going to shut that business down. We just, we're, we're, we're not, that's, no, that's not a smart idea going forward, I believe. So many things have happened over the last six months. Uh, you know, back in March, I think people were very concerned. The governor made the decision to shut down our schools, to place us into a, um, a lockdown to protect people. I believe that made a lot of sense at the time. I believe that we didn't have a lot of information about the virus. Um, 
I think a lot of things have changed since then. I think we now know how it spread. Uh, I think we now know how to prevent um, spread. And we're all the fact that we're all sitting here wearing masks today uh, tells a lot about that. Um, the society that we live in today is a lot different than the society that we stepped out of uh, six months ago. And we're trying here at Bucks County really, really hard. I spent many, many hours every day trying to calm people down. People realize we got to take this seriously, but we also have to be smart and move forward in a, in a way that we can do long term because this is going to be a long term situation. This is not going to go away next week, next month, um, even with the vaccine. The economic and health crisis also has mental health implications. Sharon Curran, executive director of Bucks County's largest mental health provider, Lenape Valley, shares her experiences these last few months. I think that uh, we have to take a reasonableness approach with any of this. Like Dr. Damsker said, is that there's some place in the middle here that is reasonable. Children, sports, first responders, we all need outlets for our energy and for our stress. To take all of the coping skills away from people and not replace it with something else is never advisable in the world of behavioral health. And so I would have to say that we have to find ways for kids and for all of us to be outside and to be doing things. I'm concerned as we head into winter, how this is going to impact the mental health of all of us. I'm worried about myself, my employees, and the people that we see for treatment. With kids, we've had a mixed bag. We do a lot of services in schools to children who are struggling as well as uh, in their homes. When in the spring school stopped, for some it was a tremendous burden for the family. The children were not responding well. For other kids who may be on the autism spectrum, it was actually a relief because they didn't have to have that social interaction. And you do question, uh, I did not mention earlier, I'm almost 30 years in the world of behavioral health and a licensed social worker. I clinically question how good that is for the kids and what are the repercussions going forward with small children who are missing that type of social interaction. And so for kids, I really think that we need to, again, find that middle ground where they can have some contact, be outside, being doing activities um, while being reasonably safe. Anecdotally, I can tell you that in the first month of the pandemic, we had families bringing in family members, suicidal, homicidal, uh, more homicidal than we had seen previously, um, had either harmed their family members or were making threats and gestures to harm their family members. Um, so we've certainly seen an increase in the intensity of that. Um, and so I, I think that overall, we will see by the end of this year, an increase in rates of suicide and harm. Dr. Gerald Widrow, chairman of emergency medicine at Jefferson Health, said he's also seeing a hike in patients coming in in need of both mental health and addiction services. We're seeing more and more patients coming in seeking care around mental health, suicidal thoughts, and substance abuse. Seeing the real fear that's going on, patients don't want to go to their doctors. They don't want to go get a CAT scan or an MRI. They're putting off basic life-saving testing, such as colonoscopies, bronchoscopies, getting a chest x-ray, an EKG, or a stress test. And all that's having an impact, because what we're seeing now, that we're having people having delays in healthcare, they're now coming in much sicker than they, did, they would have six months ago. We're seeing patients having more complicated illnesses, longer stays in the hospital, requiring much more time to unwind the effects of this disease. When someone comes into the ED now and they're dying of a heart attack or a stroke, I wonder, you know, was 
COVID an accomplice in this? They're COVID negative. They don't die from COVID, but was COVID an accomplice in this? And I wonder that oftentimes, especially in our elderly population. The psychological impacts of this that we've started to touch base is unclear, but should not be understated. So what you're seeing is a double-edged sword, lower ED volumes, but yet hospitals are on divert. Hospitals are holding patients in their emergency departments because there's so much complexity and severity of illness. You know, what I always tell people is don't be afraid of COVID, respect COVID. There's a big difference between fear and respect. And if you follow, every hospital has implemented really, really positive changes to make sure it's safe. How do we get that word out? I think we need to say, you need to get your care. Don't put off your colonoscopy. Don't put off your stress test. If you're feeling sick and you think you're having a stroke, call 911. I have seen so many patients in the past six months that have waited two, three, four days after massive strokes, have had heart attacks at home and are now in congestive heart failure, which shouldn't happen in this day and age. Another group that's being decimated by this is the, the elderly. Those living in assisted living and, and, and long-term care. Not only is it the risk of infection, they're higher risk of mortality, but the fact that they're isolated, they're being smothered, they have no social interaction. Their family communication is through a screen or maybe through an iPhone if they can get it. Our moms and dads, our greatest generation is, is really being snuffed out by this and we have to figure out a better way in my mind. Hospitals have changed with this pandemic. We've worked hard to create safe and welcoming environments, but it's been really, really difficult. Mandatory masking policies have helped. There's no question about that. We've restricted visitors to essential caregivers, which is important. We've really changed how we communicate with patients and families overall. But we've even changed things like where you can get a soda, can you get a, a sandwich when you're in the hospital. All these things are changing in real time and it impacts the health and the ability of people to seek care. We've had seen a lot of advancing treatment options and the, the jury is still out, do they even have impact? A lot of facilities and hospitals have started mobile COVID testing sites. The organization I work for, Jefferson, has one right here in Ben Salem, and they offer regular routine testing of patients with a highly reliable test to make sure that we can appropriately test people. But all these things have come at, a, at an expense. The equipment, the materials, the personnel. We've had price gouging of people. A gown that used to go for 25 cents going for $10 because somebody can make a buck. Unacceptable. Our supply chain is at risk. We rely heavily on other countries, especially China, for parts of our medical equipment. We have to figure out a way around that. And we have to keep our healthcare workers safe. If we don't, they won't be there when we need them. A lot of people talk about PPE. Um, we took it for granted in healthcare. It would always be there, and then it wasn't gloves and masks, gowns and, and, and the like, all very important. But we quickly went through that. We went from, we, we started doing things we never did before. I never in my career reused a mask. Now I wear the same mask for a week. We now have situations where we recycle a mask because we wanna make sure that we have that equipment if and when we need it. We've also seen, as I said, healthcare workers begging for equipment. Now some of that was because of, as Dr. Danskra pointed out, probably fear that wasn't real, but part of it was as well that hospitals working their best to source equipment could not get it. The financial impact, as we've said, is, is, has been significant. Operating margins of hospitals have been destroyed. Uh, you know, we're seeing, even with federal stimulus dollars that have come through, substantial negative mar operating margins for almost every hospital and health system in this region. 
Hospital volumes are slowly rebounding. People are still afraid to come to the hospital though. Telemedicine has been a bright spot, but there's a lot of challenges with that as well. No one knows how to pay a healthcare provider for that. What do you do with people that can't use telemedicine? The elderly in particular do not often know how to use a smartphone or an iPad and can't gain access to that. So it's a value add, but we still have a lot of questions about it. I would argue that health insurance companies have been, done very well through the pandemic. Most of them have very positive operating margins right now versus most, most hospitals have at this point. There's an economic tsunami in front of us on this, and I think we haven't even fully felt it. Small hospitals, small practices are going to close. You're gonna see it happen. And that's something we all have to think about and come up with ways to work around. We have seen our emergency department volumes fluctuate like a seismograph during an earthquake. We've seen ups and downs, almost daily, almost unpredictable. How do you staff for that? We have to really balance how we're gonna serve our patients and serve our healthcare uh, safety net. The financial path to stability for this has to be a long-term game plan. I would argue layoffs and furloughs and shuttering of hospitals and firing or terminating healthcare workers is not that solution. First responders who are the, the base, the foundation of our healthcare system have not been immune. Reduced transports, depressed revenues, issues around high costs of PPE have all impacted most EMS agencies. Most have seen their revenues decline while their expenses have gone up. ENTs and paramedics are asked with no information to go into a potential COVID hotspot, whether it's a nursing home or someone's home. And they are asked to do what none of us wants to do, but they've answered that call. House Bill 2485, thank you, uh, uh, Representative Farry, starts to help with that, but it is only one small part of making sure that we are there to help our first responders. When someone calls 911, they expect an ambulance to come. They expect them to be trained and be protected. So we're entering COVID 2.0, I like to call it, the recovery phase, if you will. Imagine if you're that young nurse wearing an N95 mask and a gown for 12 hours and what that feels like. Imagining you're the experienced ICU physician or nurse practitioner, and you're the only one holding the hand of that person dying because no family can be there. Imagine you're the emergency department physician or the critical care physician who every day deals with conflicting information of how to treat these patients. Or you're the paramedic walking into a house and you don't know at that moment, are you being exposed to COVID? My late father always said, be in healthcare, you will never be without a job. I don't know if that's true anymore. We need to stabilize the healthcare system. We need to look at the economic, physical, and psychological impacts of COVID on our healthcare system. I will tell you that healthcare executives have been forced to have a razor thin margin for trying to keep hospitals surviving with minimal reserves and trying to uh, uh, make a hospital work on that gives you no capacity for when something unthinkable like a global pandemic happens. We've got to think bigger and more creatively than that. We need to create a system that supports our healthcare heroes. We need to make sure that, that, that we are there to support them like they have been there to support all of us. We work better together as a healthcare institution, as a member of the healthcare team. We are here and we want to work with you if you're ready. I'll end with this thought. Next time you're in the hospital, you see the housekeeper, the food service worker, the security guard, the EMT, the x-ray tech, the nurse or the doctor. They're your healthcare system. They're the ones that kept this going when the rest of us thought that there was the end of the world was coming. Thank them. Coming to work regardless of the risk to assure that you're there to treat patients. We didn't work from home. None of us got that option. We came in, thanked them. Our team is here for COVID 2.0 and we want to work with you, but we need your support.
Reporting from Ben Salem, this is Marion Callahan. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.